Well, good morning to you, brothers and sisters of Community Bible Church. I ask that you turn in your Bibles to John chapter 2. Because of his great zeal for life, liberty, and country, George Washington commanded the Continental Army of the fledgling United States of America to victory over the British in 1783. Six years later on this day, April 30th, 1789, George Washington continued his service to our country as the President of the United States, the very first, taking the oath of office in Federal Hall in New York City. After eight years of faithful, sacrificial service to our country, George Washington left office sharing thoughts like these with his fellow Americans in his farewell address, which he printed in September of 1796. He said, quote, the basis of our political system is the right of the people to make and to alter their constitutions of government. But the constitution, which at any time exists until changed by an explicit and authentic act of the whole people, is sacredly obligatory upon all. He said, beware of both political parties. They are likely in the course of time and things to become potent engines by which cunning, ambitious, and unprincipled men will be enabled to subvert the power of the people and to usurp for themselves the reins of government. He said, of all the dispositions and habits which lead to political prosperity, religion and morality are indispensable supports. And finally, I would give you this quote. He said, I shall also carry with me the hope that my country will never cease to view my errors with indulgence, and that after 45 years of my life dedicated to its service with an upright zeal, the faults of incompetent abilities will be consigned to oblivion as myself must soon be to the mansions of rest. Humbly, humbly, George Washington acknowledged both his mistakes and he also acknowledged his zeal while in office as our nation's first president. We remember him for his zeal, not so much for his mistakes. Zeal to fight the British. Zeal to lead men in blood-soaked battlefields. Zeal to engage the struggle of men, power, politics. Perhaps we don't give George Washington enough credit for the zeal that he had for our Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ. Washington is quoted as having prayed the following, quote, O most glorious God, direct my thoughts, words, and work. Wash away my sins in the immaculate blood of the Lamb, and purge my heart by the Holy Spirit. Daily frame me more and more into the likeness of thy Son, Jesus Christ. Thou gavest thy Son to die for me, and hast given me assurance of salvation. What a powerful and accurate confession of faith in Jesus Christ from our first president. What a great request. Wash me. Purge my heart of sin. You can't miss this in these comments. George Washington has zeal for Jesus. These two topics, zeal and purging, are the focus of our text in John chapter 2, where you are now. However, in John 2, the Apostle John is consumed with Jesus' zeal and Jesus' purging of the temple at Passover in Jerusalem 1,993 years ago. For context, let me to remind you that the purpose of John's gospel is that you believe, you believe that Jesus is God. John's heart beats in order to share the fact with all mankind that you must believe that Jesus is God. In 21 chapters, John is going to share seven signs, seven miracles performed by Jesus that prove this very equation. Jesus is God. The supernatural power of Jesus in each of the seven signs increases until we arrive at the greatest sign, the most incomprehensible sign in John chapter 20. You know this very well. We just celebrated Resurrection Sunday. It is the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. 
And just so you don't miss the point of John's gospel, after he shares sign number seven, the greatest sign in John 20, he says in John 20, verse 31, these signs have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Chapter one of John is, is where we see John's goal to convince his readers that Jesus is God by way of eyewitness confessions regarding Jesus' deity. The first 18 verses of John chapter 1 are explicit testimony of the apostle John himself who says that Jesus is the Word with God from the beginning, the Word made flesh, the Creator, the light of the world, and the only begotten God. And just in the event that you aren't convinced coming out of chapter 1 by his own personal testimony, John turns to the testimony of John the Baptist and five other witnesses who declare Jesus is God. Jesus is the Lamb of God, the Chosen of God, the Messiah, the Son of God, the King of Israel, and Jesus himself will say that he is that messianic title, Son of Man. We've observed that John records these confessions and testimony of Jesus' deity during the first full week of Jesus' ministry, which we have properly called Word Witness Week. We noted that the six days of testimony in John chapter 1 appear to be part of what is a Genesis chapter 1 theme that John employs to open up his gospel. The first three words of John 1.1 are in the beginning, which are a direct match for Genesis 1.1 as well. And you can't help but see that at the end of Word Witness Week, as we enter into John chapter 2, Jesus and his disciples end up at a marriage feast in Cana of Galilee, which is exactly what we see in Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2 as well. At the end of the first week of creation, we see the wedding of one man and one woman. And here in chapter 2, we see the first of Jesus' seven signs. We saw this last week. Sign number one, turning, or two weeks ago, turning water into wine at the wedding in Cana. Regarding the signs in John's gospel, I employ a list of six criteria in determining the seven signs in Jesus' ministry. Let me make sure that you have my list of six criteria for John's signs. To be counted as a sign in the gospel of John, John's seven signs must include the following. Number one, eyewitness testimony of the apostles. Number two, specific numerical data in the context. Number three, the word believe in the context. Number four, the word semion or sign in the context. Number five, the physical demonstration of a supernatural work. Number six, recognition of John's numbering of the signs. All these criteria are met in John chapter two at sign number one, the water to wine sign, which is labeled sign number one by John himself. We will not encounter sign number two until Jesus returns to Cana of Galilee in John 4, 46, when Jesus will heal the son of a royal official. Biblical scholars are quick to note that Cana of Galilee appears in the text as a set of bookends holding together John 2 with John 4 and sign number 1 then with sign number 2, Cana of Galilee. They call this section of text, the biblical scholars, they call it the Cana cycle, which begins and ends in Cana of Galilee. In between signs 1 and sign 2, in Jesus' ministry, John reports Jesus went up to Jerusalem for the Passover in A.D. 30. John is going to supplement his seven signs that prove Jesus' deity with additional demonstrations of Jesus' authority, zeal, teaching, counseling, and even Jesus' hardcore evangelism. Although Galilee will act as a home base for Jesus' ministry, his three-year ministry, John reports that Jesus takes his ministry on the road, as it were which we read in John chapter 2, verse 12, 
where the apostle says, After this, Jesus went down to Capernaum, he and his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there a few days. And the Passover of the Jews was near, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem, and he found in the temple those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers seated at their tables. And he made a scourge of cords and drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And those who were selling the doves, he said to them, take these things away. Stop making my father's house a house of business. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then said to him, what sign do you show us as your authority for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this sanctuary and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it took 46 years to build this sanctuary and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the sanctuary of his body. So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said this, and they believed the scriptures and the word which Jesus had spoken. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name when they saw his signs which he was doing. But Jesus on his part was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men, and because he had no need that anyone bear witness concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man." The Jewish elite are engaged in this text in pragmatism at the temple. Pragmatism at the temple of the living God. Pragmatism, friends, is doing what is most convenient, doing what is the easiest, whatever helps draw the largest crowd, whatever results in the biggest gain. Pragmatism consumed the hearts of the wicked rulers of the Jewish temple in Jerusalem. They wanted great gain. They wanted great gain. Not spiritual gain to the glory of God. They wanted financial gain. Economic enhancement, wealth, they wanted money. They set up the temple to do this for them. By moving the money changers into the temple along with the animals and the sacrifice, they were providing a service for which people were willing to pay outrageous prices. John MacArthur says, what had begun as a service to the worshipers had, under the corrupt rule of the chief priest, degenerated into exploitation and usury. As Jesus surveyed the sacred temple grounds, now turned into a bazaar, MacArthur says, Jesus was appalled and outraged at what he had seen. This seeker-sensitive, pragmatic accommodation for Passover guests was far too much for Jesus to stomach in a house that demanded reverence and worship. His response is one that the Apostle John never forgot. Last week I shared with you in the text, John remembers three moments of Jesus' ministry muscle at the Temple Mount that result in belief. It is the case that in our text, John shares three points in Jesus' Passover zeal in Jerusalem so that you will believe. So then what three points in Jesus' Passover zeal in Jerusalem are remembered so that you will believe? Well, these are the three points in Jesus' Passover zeal that you need to have brought to your remembrance as well. Number one, from last week, we had the scourge in the temple. Second, we see the sanctuary in the temple. And third, we see the signs in the temple. These three points are of Jesus' Passover zeal in Jerusalem are to be remembered. The scourge in the temple, the sanctuary in the temple, and the signs in the temple. Now, last week, we went through number one, the, the first of three points of Jesus' Passover zeal, the scourge in the temple. And we noted that Jesus made a scourge of cords and ran out all of the sellers and the animals. And then he kicked over the tables of the money changers. And not only was there a physical rebuke that he issued to these people, there was a verbal one that went out as well. Jesus was consumed with righteous zeal 
for his father's house, and it was extremely memorable for John and his disciples, so much so that he recorded it here. We noted as well that the temple where God comes to meet with man was permanently and forever relocated into the hearts of believers. Brothers and sisters, it is the case, Scripture explicitly says in 1 Corinthians 3.16, do you not know that you are a sanctuary of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If any man destroys the sanctuary of God, God will destroy him. For the sanctuary of God is holy, and that is what you are. I presented this as the great challenge then of point number one in our notes, the scourge of the temple. At point number one, the scourge of the temple for all of us, we needed to ask these questions. Where is your zeal for the temple of God that is your body? Has the Lord scourged your heart of all sexual depravity and debauchery, especially in the forms of pornography? Do you require the scourging of your heart by Jesus again today? Do you abstain from all manner of sexual immorality? Do you zealously pursue sexual purity, not only for yourself, but for the bride of Christ, the church? Does zeal for the house of God consume you? Paul says to the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 4.3, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passions like the Gentiles who do not know God. Jesus' zeal in our text continues into a confusing conversation that he has with the Jewish elite after his physical sign he is going to have this verbal interaction, this verbal conversation with these men, an issue of verbal sign, you could say. These men who rule over the affairs of the temple, they need to be brought to the actual sanctuary of God, the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. This brings us to number two in our notes then. The second of three points in Jesus' Passover zeal is number two in your notes, the sanctuary in the temple. The sanctuary in the temple. Jesus has just performed the scourging in the temple, that's point number one, and now he is going to declare that he is the sanctuary in the temple, point number two in your notes, the sanctuary in the temple. We see Jesus make this declaration in responding to the Jewish authorities. As we read where John reports in chapter 2, verse 18 through 22, the Jews then said to Jesus, what sign do you show us as your authority for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this sanctuary, and in three days I will raise it up again. The Jews then said, it took 46 years to build this sanctuary, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the sanctuary of his body. So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said this, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken. In this text, we see the sanctuary and the temple. Jesus is the sanctuary, and he's standing in the temple. He is the new temple, even as he is standing with the Jews in the temple, on the temple mount. This is the eternal spiritual reality, friends. Jesus is the temple. We also see Jesus' zeal for the temple of doom. Jesus' body is doomed. You know this, right? It's not the case that Jesus' body will be honored by the men that he's speaking with. In two years' time, they will hate Jesus so much, they will arrest him, beat him, punch, kick, hit him, 
Place a crown of thorns on his head, make him carry his own cross to Calvary, and these wicked men will crucify the Lord of glory. Yet after his death, he will choose, which he will choose to die, after his death that he chooses to die, he will be buried in a tomb that will not be able to contain his resurrected body because he will rise from the tomb in three days. In an act of grace, in an act of truth, in an act of divine prophetic mystery, Jesus reveals his eternal resurrection plan to the Jewish authorities, but they are hopelessly lost to understand the imagery and the irony in Jesus' prophecy. Jesus has perfectly clouded the conversation, friends. He has intentionally veiled the truth in plain sight. He has hidden his crucifixion and resurrection in clandestine absurdity. There are three reasons this conversation is clouded, not easily understood, puzzling and muddied. Jesus and the Jewish authorities are talking right to each other, but it's as if they can't see or can't hear one another. Their meeting is necessary, as Jesus has made it from his scourging. A discussion, because of his behavior, is required, but they're both approaching this conversation from entirely different perspectives. Jesus is speaking from the cloud of eternal spiritual truth and prophecy, from absolute divinity. The Jews are speaking from the cloud of human reason, desire, and greed. And it's really no wonder why this conversation is frustrating. The first clouded aspect of this conversation comes from the first of three clouds in this clouded conversation. The first cloud in this conversation arises because of number one in your notes, the Jews' compromised authority. The Jews' compromised authority. Let's look at this first cloud that clouds this conversation. The Jews' compromised authority. There'll be three clouds. This is the first one. The Jews' compromised authority. Why is this conversation clouded? Because these people abused their authority. Read with me the Jews' compromised authority in John chapter 2, verse 18, where John reports, the Jews then said to Jesus, what sign do you show us as your authority for doing these things? Without question, the Jewish authorities must come and confront Jesus after his temple scourging, and they do this. D.A. Carson says, as the legal authorities, the Jews, the Sanhedrin, temple authorities, they had every right to question the credentials of someone who had taken such bold action in the temple complex. I believe that the same is likely true in our public school system today. As soon as a high schooler would begin to pray or pull out his Bible in the high school cafeteria, wouldn't it be the case that the lunch lady and other public school authorities must immediately respond to such a public transgression? Such religious zealotry would quickly be thwarted and the threat neutralized in order to provide a safe space for all the children of the state. However, the public school authorities are not going to ask the Bible reading, prayer warrior, high school student to show them a sign. They're going to head him off to the principal's office and then to the curb where his parents are to come and pick him up because as a, public, as a, a publicly praying high school student knows, this action in the cafeteria will likely result in a suspension and the appropriate charges might need to be filed with the authorities. Notice, friends, the Jewish authorities don't arrest Jesus. Notice this. Why? We have to ask the question, why? Why don't they arrest him? If Jesus is a hooligan, if he is a troublemaker, he should have been tackled to the ground, handcuffed, dragged out by the temple authorities, by the police. 
No questions would be asked of this man. No discussion. No confusion. Arrest, handcuffs, imprisonment. Instead, the Jews want two answers from Jesus. They go down this road of questioning. Answer us, Jesus, about your authority. Answer us, Jesus, with a sign. Both of these demands from the Jewish authorities tell us something about their hearts, don't they? Let's consider both of the demands of these Jews. Regarding, first, Jesus' authority, let's, let's look at this. What does this tell us about their hearts? The question from the Jews is actually an indictment against their management of the temple. Their question is an indictment against their mismanagement of the temple. By not arresting Jesus and asking him about his authority instead, the Jews are acknowledging that Jesus' scourging of the temple actually had merit to it. It was right and good to remove the selling of sacrificial animals from the temple. Instead of admitting their own guilt and thanking Jesus for restoring righteousness in the temple, they attempt to put Jesus on the defensive by demanding to know how his authority comes, where it comes from, because they didn't give him the authority that he took for himself. They didn't ascribe that to him. William Hendrickson says, the hostile Jewish authorities now ask Jesus to vindicate his drastic action, but this request was stupid, says Hendrickson. The temple cleansing was itself a sign. Hendrickson says further, the request for the sign was not only stupid, however, it was wicked. It was the result of unwillingness to admit their own guilt. The Jews' question about authority, friends, is a smokescreen. It's a veil. It's a cloud meant to conceal their misuse and abuse of the authority that had been given to them by God. They question Jesus about his authority because their authority has been condemned and their pride has been directly assaulted through Jesus' scourging of the temple. You see, friends, their authority has been perfectly compromised by their own actions, and their question acknowledges how compromised their authority is. Their question not only exposes their pride, their question also exposes their greed. Not only must Jesus answer regarding his authority, the answer must come with a sign. And so we see this second demand of the Jews. Second, out of the abundance of their heart, the mouths of the Jewish authorities demand a sign. This, friends, is greed. Would you turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 1? 1 Corinthians chapter 1. John MacArthur says, the fact that the authorities demanded a sign also exposes the wickedness of their hearts. They knew that their greedy, corrupt commercialization of the temple worship was wrong. They knew this. Their demand for a sign was foolish, he says. He says the messianic act of single-handedly cleansing the temple was itself a clear sign that God had a message for these priests and these authorities in the temple. Notice also, Leon, as, as Leon Morris does, interestingly, they did not dispute the rightness of Jesus' action in the temple. They didn't dispute the, the rightness of his action. These Jews are so wicked. They got caught abusing their God-given authority, and they're going to do it again in their question. They have no guilt. They have no shame. At the same time, their greed overwhelms them, and they use their authority now. They're going to use their authority and leverage it in a way to get something out 
of a worshiper, to get something out of a participant in the temple. They're going to extract a sign out of Jesus. Friends, when you think about this, the abuse of authority on this level, this is next level greed, next level greed that these Jewish authorities are involved in. They're going to try to extract out of Jesus because he performed an act of righteousness. They're going to try to extract out of him a sign for them. Very selfish. Speaking of next level greed and the abuse of authority, do you know President Joe Biden's son, Hunter, is a world famous artist? Did you know this? Hunter's artwork has been featured at the prestigious Georges Burgess Art Gallery in New York, including two solo showings which had guests come by invitation only. His most recent art show and sale in December of 2022 included a five by eight foot elementary school quality painting of leaves and flowers on a yellow background priced for sale at $225,000. And the New York Post reported that two buyers were already interested. I have my suspicions that one was likely Chinese and the other Ukrainian. <laughs> Next level greed, friends. Next level greed, the abuse of authority are commonplace in a world dominated by sin, whether 2,000 years ago or right now in our own context. How does this next level greed and abuse of authority happen? It happens because of the total depravity of man. The total depravity of man. Men believe that they are wise. But spiritually, politically, relationally, men are fools chasing worthless idols. You're in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Look at verse 22 where Paul speaks of the foolishness of men and the idols that they chase, saying in verse 18, beginning in 18, back it up with me. He says in verse 18 of, of chapter 1, For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, the word of the cross is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since the wisdom of God for since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for a sign, and Greeks search for wisdom, and Americans lust for money. But we preach Christ crucified, to Jews a stumbling block, and to Gentiles foolishness. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Turn back in your Bibles to John 2, 19. The Jewish authorities who approach Jesus are sophomoric, wise fools. They are wise in their own eyes, and they are corrupt and greedy abusers of their religious authority given to them by God. Is Jesus obligated to obey them? Is he obligated to give them what they want? How does Jesus handle the request of the greedy, unrighteous, compromised Jewish authorities? 
The answer to these questions comes as we approach the second of three clouds in this clouded conversation. The second cloud is number two in your notes, Jesus' covert absurdity. Number two in your notes is Jesus' covert absurdity. Cloud number two, Jesus' covert absurdity. We see Jesus' covert absurdity in our text when John reports in chapter 2, verse 19, Jesus answered them, destroy this sanctuary and in three days I will raise it up. Now, what on earth does Jesus mean with these words? His words are a paradox and a puzzle. His answer is both veiled and pointed, demanding and prophetic, spiritual and physical, ridiculous and a riddle. Jesus has not answered with an instantaneous supernatural sign. He has answered the Jews with a command and a scenario that will bring about the greatest sign the world has ever seen about Jesus' authority. It will bring about His resurrection from the dead. But do they understand the sign that Jesus has given them? How are we to understand Jesus' answer and this sign that he's presenting? How can we slice through the confusion of the audience which Jesus intended and come to the right meaning of his covert message? What words give rise to ambiguity? How does Jesus conceal his message from the minds of these Jewish authorities? Turn in your Bibles to Matthew 12. Matthew 12, we'll look at verse 38. In the text of Jesus' covert absurdity, we read about three days. Three days, friends, is very easy to understand. Three days is very literal. Within a 72-hour period, or more than 26 hours. Three days conceals Jesus' meaning in the absurdity of accomplishing an enormous feat in less than 72 hours' time. Besides the supernatural sign, the Jews want... <clears throat> I should say this. Besides, the supernatural sign that the Jews want should be something that Jesus can do instantaneously. It shouldn't be something that takes 72 hours to accomplish. They want something in front of them right now. That's how their greed works. Why should any good and great sign take three days? We have in the text of Jesus' covert absurdity, raise it up, which in the Greek is the verb egero, which means to arise, to heal, to restore, to raise up. Egero ranges from the work of construction to the work of resurrection, from remodeling to resuscitation and is therefore applicable to both buildings and the human body, which helps Jesus perfectly conceal his sign. Sanctuary is the Greek word naos, which means temple or dwelling place. It re refers specifically to the temple, not the whole temple mount complex. Most often generally denotes the actual temple in Jerusalem, the place where God personally encounters man. Here again, Jesus conceals his sign by, leaning on the, by not leaning on the generally accepted use of the word naos, but rather naos as the dwelling place of God, even his own body, because Jesus is God. The Greek, friends, literally reads as follows. The Greek literally reads this way. Destroy the temple, this one, and I will raise it up in three days. Further, we need to consider the command that Jesus is answering with. This command begins with the Greek verb luo, which is destroy, which means to loose, to release, to break, or to destroy. Now, for those of us who are in community groups, we just saw 
this verb luo this last week in Acts 27, 41, where Paul's ship ran aground on a reef and the bow struck fast and remained immovable, but the stern began to be broken up, luo, by the force of the waves. So notice in our text today, Jesus is commanding the Jews to break up, to destroy this sanctuary. You do it. You Jews do the breaking up and the destroying of this sanctuary. Break it up into pieces like waves break up the back of a ship that's stuck in a reef. Edward Klink says, destroy is best understood then also as a conditional imperative, a conditional imperative. Jesus, friends, is setting up an if-then scenario with this command. If you do this, if you destroy, then at that time, I will raise up. Pay attention. Pay attention to the verbs. Pay attention to the pronouns. This is a second person plural verb. You all, y'all destroy the temple. Hold on to the pronouns. Understand who is being spoken to and what Jesus' words actually said. Jesus is presenting a path for the Jews to receive the sign they so greatly desire from him. Jesus is even commanding the scenario that will reveal his greatest miracle, resurrection. He is saying to these Jews, you will get your sign when you perform and obey the command that I've issued to you. He's commanding them, ultimately, to bring doom to his body. Isn't that something? But Jesus' command is absurd to those who are listening. It's crazy talk. This is insanity. And to his audience, it makes no sense. But it is a direct match for Jesus' later revelation of the same sign that he wants to communicate to his disciples and anyone who will listen, as we read about in Matthew 12, 38, where you are now. In, in Matthew 12, 38, Jesus is in Galilee, healing the sick, casting out demons, teaching in the synagogue. We read in Matthew 12, 38, then some of the scribes of the Pharisees answered and said to him, teacher, we want to see a sign from you. Great, the same guys are back at it again. But he answered and said to them, an evil and adulterous generation eagerly seeks for a sign, and yet no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn this generation because they repented, the Ninevites did, at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. He's talking about himself. I'm here, I'm God. Verse 42, the queen of the south will rise up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn this generation because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, y'all have something so much better, something greater than Solomon is standing in front of you and you can't see it. Turn in your Bibles to Matthew 26, Matthew 26, verse 59. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is consistent in sharing a three-day sign that includes restoration from despair, resurrection from death. And so too, the Pharisees and the disciples are consistent in failing to understand Jesus' great spiritual sign. The Pharisees and the Sadducees come testing Jesus again as you just flipped right past it as you went to chapter 26 
In Matthew 16, they ask for a sign again, and Jesus tells them an evil and adulterous generation, in verse 4 of Matthew 16, an, e an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, and a sign will not be given it, except the sign of Jonah. And he left them and went away. Jesus has every reason to speak prophetic words with a depth of meaning beyond face value. I'll say that again. Jesus has every reason to speak prophetic words with a depth of meaning beyond face value. He has every ability to obscure and conceal the greatest sign of his ministry in terms with dual meanings. Is Jesus obligated to make his resurrection perfectly clear to every individual human being? Is, he, is it mandatory for God to disclose all of his plans for the salvation of men to all men equally? Is God obligated? Is Jesus obligated? The answer, friends, is no. He is not obligated. God's greatest glory comes in the fact that Jesus' words both reveal and conceal the truth of his deity and his plan for resurrection glory. Do you get that? God's greatest glory comes in concealing and revealing where he wants to. God's greatest glory comes in the fact that men will never understand Jesus' resurrection riddle unless Jesus enters their hearts, opens their eyes, and unblocks their deaf ears, which is to say salvation belongs to the Lord. Salvation is required to understand the resurrection. You will not understand the resurrection unless salvation happens to you of Jesus' choosing. Maybe a better way to say this is, you will understand the resurrection when Jesus has saved you. Without salvation, men will only ever misunderstand the totality of Jesus' deity, deity ministry, message, and especially Jesus' resurrection. John MacArthur says, like his parables... This veiled statement in John 2.19 judicially conceals the truth from hostile unbelievers. Concealed truth from hostile unbelievers. MacArthur goes on to say, whose spiritual blindness resulted from their own unbelief and rebellion against God. You're in Matthew 26. We're at verse 59, where we get further evidence of the hostility and misunderstanding of the Jews toward Jesus, particularly as it relates to Jesus' answer and prophecy in John 2.19. At Jesus' mock sham show trial before Caiaphas, the high priest, Matthew reports in Matthew 26, verse 59. Now, the chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin kept trying to obtain false testimony against Jesus so that they might put him to death, and they did not find any even though many false witnesses came forward. But later, but later on, that same day, even within hours, moments, but later on, two men came forward and said, quote, this man stated, I am able to destroy the sanctuary of God and rebuild it in three days. You see it? And the high priest stood up and said to him, do you not answer? What are these men testifying against you? But Jesus kept silent. They tried to get Jesus on a charge of sedition by saying that he claimed he would 
destroy the temple. This was two years before. Their testimony in, in Matthew 26 happens two years before. And, and th the way that they recalled Jesus' outrageous, covert, absurd statement was that he said he would destroy the temple. Brothers and sisters, did Jesus say, I am able to destroy the sanctuary of God? Is he guilty of sedition? No. I ask you to remember, Jesus commanded the Jews to destroy the sanctuary. The charge of sedition is wrongly placed on Jesus. It is the Jews who will actually destroy the sanctuary of the living God that is Jesus' body in just a matter of hours after they receive this faulty allegation against him. Can you just feel the irony in the text? Back in John 2.19, Jesus commanded the Jews to destroy the temple, and they were all confused. Two years later, these men say Jesus said he would destroy the temple, and they'd make false allegations against him. And within hours of receiving the false allegations, they actually take the man who is the temple of God, and they crucify him, and they destroy the sanctuary. The irony is so thick. Turn back in your Bibles to John 2.19. Leon Morris says, There is irony in the fact that ultimately the Jews themselves were to be the means of bringing about the sign that they asked Jesus to produce and which they did not recognize when it came. He says, There is further irony in that to put Jesus to death was to offer the one sacrifice that can truly expiate sin and thus doom the temple as a place of offering of sacrifice. Brothers and sisters, Jesus absolutely was the temple of doom. Jesus was the temple of doom. His death on the cross at the hands of wicked men in AD 33 ushered in the doom and destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, which happened under Nero, Emperor Nero of the Romans in AD 70. John MacArthur says, his death as the ultimate sacrificial lamb would render the Jerusalem temple obsolete. It's worthless. It doesn't have a purpose anymore. MacArthur says, and his resurrection as the triumphant Lord would lay the foundation for a new spiritual temple in its place, namely the church. Brothers and sisters, how do you feel about Jesus' veiled ambiguity? What do you make of Jesus' covert, absurd prophecy? Is it okay for Jesus to use double meaning and double speak, but not you and I? Is there a divine double standard in the text? Friends, there is no divine double standard. Our words reveal our heart condition. Jesus' heart is absolutely pure. Our hearts Fallen humanity, our hearts are the ones that are sinful. 234 years ago today, on April 30th, 1789, President Washington pledged the presidential oath of office before God and his fellow countrymen when he repeated after Chancellor Robert Livingston, George Washington said, I do solemnly swear that I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States and will, to the best of my ability, preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. So help me, God. It is reported that President Washington then kissed the Bible and went to deliver his inaugural address in the Senate chamber. Every president of the United States since then has recited the very same oath. And it makes you wonder, doesn't it? It makes you wonder. How many of the presidents of the United States meant what they said? 
How many of them repeated the words, but in their minds they had concocted different meanings for those very same words? How many of those men truly shared the same understandings of the words preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution? How many of them ended their pledge with so help me God? And how many of our presidents actually relied on Jesus, who is God, for the help that they requested? Brothers and sisters, it is through doublespeak through the twisting of words and concealed motives that presidents of the United States have pledged to preserve our nation while actively seeking its destruction. Consider with me some of the terminology that you and I have witnessed over the course of the last 15 years. Can, can you help me out with, with this kind of innuendo and, and this kind of doublespeak when we talk about women's reproductive rights, gender-affirming care, the Respect for Marriage Act, the Inflation Reduction Act, health care, even the word unity, has been transformed by our current president to mean compliance by force. We hate doublespeak coming off the mouths of our leaders. Doublespeak is, according to Wikipedia, language that deliberately obscures, disguises, distorts, or reverses the meaning of words. It may also refer to intentional ambiguity in language or to actual inversion of meaning. In such cases, doublespeak disguises the nature of the truth. And so we ask some difficult questions of our Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior, Lord Jesus, why didn't you make your language to the Jews explicitly clear so that they could understand you? Don't you, Lord Jesus, desire all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge, the full knowledge of the truth, as Paul reports for us to Timothy in 1 Timothy 2.4? Lord Jesus, why veil the truth? Why speak in riddles, parables, and puzzling prophecy? Why? Brothers and sisters, what would Jesus say to these questions? Can we ask these questions of our Savior? How would Jesus answer these questions? Do you think that these questions are an indictment against the goodness of Christ? Can the goodness of Jesus be challenged? Was Jesus wrong and not good when he concealed his resurrection from these Jews? What's the answer? The answer is this. Jesus is always good. Jesus never lies, and he's never wrong about any decision that he made. And here's why. The guiding principle of Jesus' ministry is the glory of God. At the risk of being shamed, condemned, misunderstood, lied about, mistreated, beaten, and spat upon, Jesus lived his life only ever doing good, righteousness, truth, telling the truth, speaking the truth, even for men, if it came across veiled in prophecy, he still spoke to them the truth. So that Jesus could arrive at Calvary's cross, beaten and battered by evil men, and be crucified on the cross they made him carry in order to receive, in that horrible, horrendous moment, the wrath of God onto him for all of our sins, which he took onto himself as well. Jesus then chose to die on that cross, which when you think about the most veiled truth Jesus presented, it had to be this one, because God can't die. But Jesus chose to die. And in so doing, he proved his power over death by staying in the tomb, the appointed and prophesied three days, and then absolutely, unquestionably, victoriously, Jesus rose from the grave. He defeated death. 
Jesus' glory, greatest glory, his most marvelous miracle was resurrection from the dead. Friends, Jesus rose from the grave so that he could apply the salvation that he purchased on the cross to all of those he had chosen to save in eternity past. Just as Jesus has no business sharing salvation with those who are not his elect, so too Jesus has no business revealing more to wicked sinful men than exactly what he planned to say and what he did say when he walked this earth among his enemies and those who were rebels to his righteous commands. You tell me, friend, how was Jesus unjust to these wicked, greedy, prideful Jewish authorities? Someone tell me how my Savior was unjust to these wicked men. How was he unjust? You've got nothing. You've got nothing against my Savior. There's nothing unjust in what he did. In fact, to the contrary, to anyone who would charge my Savior with injustice on his part with what he said to these Jewish authorities, I would say to you, I see that his behavior toward them was only entirely gracious. They got more than they deserved. In their greed and abuse of authority, demanding from their position of authority that he deliver a sign for them, they received more words from Jesus, more gracious words, more prophetic words from his mouth than they were ever due in their entire life. How did the rebellious Jewish authorities respond to Jesus' grace given through his covert absurdity? Exactly as Jesus expected, they were aghast, entirely frustrated that a foolish riddle in a nonsensical scenario was his only explanation for the temple scourging that he just inflicted upon them, which caused a shot to their pride and challenged their authority. And we see this as we come next to the third of three clouds in the clouded conversation in verse 20. The third of three clouds in this clouded conversation is number three in your notes. The Jews' confused astonishment the Jews' confused astonishment. The third of three clouds is the Jews' confused astonishment. We read about the Jews' confused astonishment in John 2.20 where John reports, the Jews then said, it took 40 years to build this sanctuary and will you raise it up in three days? The Jews are aghast. What kind of sign is this? Jesus, you're a crazy man. You're nuts. You've lost your marbles. You're insane. President Biden would say to Jesus, come on, man. Frankly, I'm amazed that they accepted Jesus' premise. The premise of Jesus' sign is, y'all destroy this temple. That's the premise of his sign, y'all destroy this temple. Why wouldn't the Jews, these religious authorities, why would they not tell Jesus, come on, man. We've got no business destroying this temple. You see, friends, this temple is the temple that Herod helped them build which was the completion of the temple project that started with Zerubbabel and Jeshua, Haggai, and Zechariah. These last Old Testament prophets and priests begin their post-Babylon reconstruction around 400 B.C. Herod offers his help for the project in 17 B.C., and by 29 A.D., the temple was finished, though there was still work to be done on the temple compound. All this to say, these Jewish leaders watched the second temple arrive at completion in their lifetime, you think that any one of them would have fired back at Jesus and said, Jesus, you're, you're crazy. Why would we destroy the temple? 
Instead, the Jews' outrage is focused on the time required to build the physical temple. Herein lies their greatest problem. You see, friends, the Jews are humanistic and entirely rationalistic. Inasmuch as they are the priests of God, protectors and defenders of the almighty supernatural God, and inasmuch as they ask for a supernatural sign, their minds will only work in physical world realities, not spiritual world realities. Inasmuch as they are the authorities of all things supernatural and spiritual, they've dumped the supernatural to embrace fully the secular. Their minds only work in the physical world, not in the spiritual world. Jesus knows exactly how their minds work. I would hope that you, as my brothers and sisters in Christ, when you're sharing the gospel, when you have children, spouses, parents who are unbelieving, understand they only see the world in the physical realities. They don't have eyes to see the spiritual realities around us all the time. This is what salvation supplies. It doesn't leave you trapped thinking only physical world realities. Salvation causes you to see life is entirely spiritual. And out of the spiritual comes the physical, but you can't accurately interpret the physical unless you know something about what is spiritual. Jesus knows how the minds of these men work. Look at chapter 2, verse 24, where John gives his commentary on what Jesus knew about all men, saying, but Jesus, on his part, was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men. And because he had no need that anyone bear witness concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. What is in man? Rebellion to God, hostility, envy, jealousy, anger, rage, shame, guilt, lust, pride. The list goes on and on. This is all physical world reality. How do those things go away in, a, in the life of a human being? Salvation has to be placed into the heart so that the person can see spiritual world realities. Jesus knows what's in the heart of sinful men. And we can't be oblivious in our own lives and in our evangelism about what is actually in the hearts of men. Jesus has given them exactly what they need to know in his covert absurdity. And they totally misunderstand him. D.A. Carson says their misunderstanding arises because they focus on the purely material, the natural. They miss what Jesus is really talking about. Worse still, in their ignorance of what Jesus is saying, they are now actively seeking to shame him because of their greed and pride. Edward Klink says, in a culture built on the foundational social values of honor and shame, Jesus was shamed in this instance. In the eyes of all of those who are present, Jesus lost the challenge to explain his authority. William Hendrickson says, the Jews see only the literal structure. Had they studied the, that is the structure of the temple, they see only the literal structure of the temple. Had they studied the scriptures, had the Jews actually been doing what they were supposed to do, Hendrickson says, had they studied the scriptures with a believing heart, they would have known that the temple, physically as it sat before them in Jerusalem, together with all of its furniture and ceremonies, that that temple was only a type destined for destruction, destined for replacement. 
The Jewish authorities, the defenders of the temple and all supernatural spiritual realities are found here again derelict in their duties to defend the temple of God from doom. And as a result, their response to Jesus goes without response. John does not report that Jesus has anything further to say to these men who would in two years gladly, happily kill the Son of God, the very essence of the temple of God. This conversation ends abruptly, leaving everyone with an earshot entirely confused except for Jesus. Do you remember during COVID being the only guy in the DMV or Papa Murphy's without a mask on? Do you remember looking around at all the holier-than-thou mask-wearing people who believe that they're Behind their mask, they were shaming you while you were the only one in the building practicing truth. Do you remember feel, that, that feeling? Remember that feeling? Do you remember smiling back at the eyes that sought to shame you? How big is the smile on Jesus' face in this moment with all the Jewish authorities and all their guile, all their venom, and all their shame bearing down on him? I've got to believe that he had a smile on his face. I've got to believe that. Because regardless of what the Jews feel, think, and say, only Jesus in this moment, only Jesus knows the truth. And if they won't listen with their ears, then they can observe with their eyes that Jesus in this moment is unfazed, undaunted, and untamed by all the shame they desire to publicly heap onto him. Which brings us to a fourth and final bonus point in your notes. We've spent our morning in a clouded conversation until we come to John 2.21, where the Holy Spirit causes John to remove the clouds and provide us with clear skies by offering, number four, John's clarifying addendum. The sky-clearing clarification from John is number four in your notes, John's clarifying addendum. Where is John's clarifying addendum? We see it in verses 21 and 22, where we read, but he was speaking about the sanctuary of his body. So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said this, and they believed the scriptures and the word which Jesus had spoken. Now this is exegetical commentary, commentary over and above what is required for the telling of the story. Where both the Jews and the disciples failed to understand Jesus' cryptic prophecy, John ensures his readers will arrive at the perfect understanding. The clarification needed to be made on this point, the point of the pronoun, the pronoun this. When Jesus said to the Jews, quite literally, destroy the temple, this one, he was not pointing to the physical temple. He only had himself in mind. D.A. Carson says the temple itself pointed forward to a better and final meeting point between God and human beings. The words, his body, says Carson, can refer only to the physical body of Jesus, crucified, buried, and raised from the dead. The Jews made an assumption, and their assumption was wrong. Of course, Without spiritual eyes to see and ears to hear, there was no way for the Jews to understand. Jesus knew this very well, which brings up another issue for us to tackle. Brothers and sisters, do you understand that Jesus shared only the words that he did so that the Jews would remain spiritually blind? Do you know that? Do you understand that Jesus is intentionally not trying to save these men but to keep salvation away from them so that at a later time his words would serve to strengthen the faith of those whom he actually caused to believe. Are you hearing what I'm saying? Jesus causes some to believe while others are intentionally left in their sin. And so here yet again, 
We see in the text of Scripture that Jesus' salvation is entirely one-sided, God-driven, grace-given, monergistic, and Calvinistic. You cannot save yourself. You must, Jesus must save you. He must give you ears to hear and eyes to see. Friends, Hunter Biden is headed to hell, except that chooses, Jesus chooses to save his life. And his father, our president, Joe Biden, is headed to hell, except that Jesus chooses to save his life as well. And I pray Jesus does save Joe Biden, because I know this about the man that is Joe Biden, my president. I know this about him. He will not choose to save himself. I know that about the man. Brothers and sisters, faith, belief in Jesus, this is the gift of salvation which is freely given by Jesus to all of his elect, adopted, redeemed children who receive Jesus' salvation passively. Jesus is active in salvation. We are passive. Not only are we passive in salvation, we see in our text in verse 22, the disciples were passive in remembering Look at verse 22. And so when he raised, when, when Jesus was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said this, and they believed the scriptures and the word which Jesus had spoken. The Greek verb mimnesco, translated remembered, is in the passive voice, which means that John is telling you that the disciples were having memories of Jesus brought to their minds. The way that your iPhone periodically brings old photos to your attention, causing you to remember, in the same way, the disciples were not thinking about Jesus' temple scourging and destruction prophecy until Jesus' Holy Spirit caused their remembrance. They were passive in remembering. Remembrance was something that was done onto them, and that's where the pictures and the words came from. It was given to them. This is exactly what Jesus said would have happened. On the night of glory, in Jesus, just before Jesus is scourged near the temple by the Roman soldiers and then hung on a cross, Jesus said to his disciples in John 14, 25, quote, These things I have spoken to you while abiding with you, but the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom my Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and will bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. Jesus told the truth about his resurrection, and he told the truth about the power and person of the indwelling Holy Spirit who comes to take up residence inside the hearts of God's children. Jesus' Holy Spirit, friends, causes belief. His Holy Spirit causes remembrance. Jesus' Spirit causes us to trust Scripture and all the words that Jesus spoke in His ministry and to know that we have a Savior that when He spoke in His ministry, He was doing the absolute most loving thing to each person that He came up to. Hold on to that because when we get to Nicodemus in just a couple of weeks, you're going to wonder, was that loving? And when he speaks to the Samaritan woman, you're going to wonder, was that loving? His evangelism is very confrontive. He was only ever loving. The question for you is very simple. Do you believe? Do you believe? Do you trust Jesus? Do you know that he causes his Holy Spirit to live in you? Has He caused His Holy Spirit to live in you? What's the proof, friend? Do you love Jesus, obey Jesus, trust the words of Jesus, particularly His Scriptures? It seems that George Washington did. He reportedly prayed to the Lord, quote, 
Let me live according to those holy rules which thou hast this day prescribed in thy holy word. Direct me to the true object, Jesus Christ, the way, the truth, and the life. Bless, O Lord, all the people of this land. The majority of the ruling Jews, Jewish class, were not graced with salvation, and those men that Jesus spoke to personally died in their sins. My question for you this morning is this. Is Jesus right now causing belief in him to come into your heart? Are the words of Scripture making sense to you? Are you seeing that love of Jesus and obedience to him are required for entrance into eternal life in heaven? Are you seeing that life lived apart from Jesus is death? Are you running to the cross this morning, friend? Don't miss that fact. Don't die in your sins like the Jews did. But like the disciples and George Washington, friend, this morning, be believing. Father in heaven, we thank you for this time together. And we thank you for the strength of the truth of your word, how your apostles trusted your word, how they wrote your word. They were commissioned to do it by the Holy Spirit. And Jesus commanded the writing of the word. How we trust in your word Cause us to always trust in your word. There's so much value and strength in it. And let us see this incredible sacrifice of your son as perfect. Perfect in all of its ways. Perfect in all of his sacrifice. Perfect to atone for our sin. Perfect to satisfy your wrath. Perfect, Father in heaven, your son was. To give us his very own righteousness. We would never have chosen it. We've received it by grace. Help us to communicate your grace to others that they also might receive the salvation that you would give to them. We pray in Christ's name, amen.